G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. A very important and interesting conversation ahead of us this hour. Uh, We're back with religious liberty analyst Elizabeth Kendall and we're going to talk through some of the issues which will be a part of your conversation, whether it's around the dinner table or over the water cooler in your workplace. These sorts of things are huge issues. A terror attack in three nations around the world over the weekend and, of course, the Supreme Court decision in the United States to do with same-sex marriage and what that has to do with religious liberty. Let's welcome our guest for this hour, Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, Adjunct Research Fellow at the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths at the Melbourne School of Theology. She's joining us once again. Hello, Elizabeth. Welcome along to 2020. Hello, Neil. Hello, Neil. Thanks for having me. Elizabeth, always good to talk to you. And on issues like this today, I mean, this is a day, a Monday, that follows a weekend where there have been momentous decisions and then, of course, these attacks that have been uh, recorded uh, around the world, places like Kuwait uh, and in Tunisia and in France too, terror attacks that were coordinated on the same day, just uh, on Friday, late Friday and into Friday night. Uh, these things uh, have been very significant. You've been uh, in Canberra addressing a conference uh, on things to do with the Middle East. Uh, we'll talk about all sorts of these different things and we'll try and keep things in some orderly pattern. Let's start off before we actually get into these issues, uh, talking about the conference you were a guest speaker at on the weekend, all about uh, the Assyrian people. What were you doing in Canberra? Uh, I was, it was Sydney, actually. In I Sydney. was up in Sydney, yes. out at Fairfield, at the Nineveh Lounge, where there was the annual Assyria Day conference. And uh, Assyria Day is a, a day that celebrates Assyrian culture and uh, is especially focused on the, the, uh, the issue of lobbying for a homeland for the Assyrian nation in their, in their own homeland, their heartland of the Nineveh Plains, where they are the indigenous people. So this is a, a, a people who we know, you know from our Old Testament, going right back to Sennacherib, uh, king in Nineveh, and, and, uh, and back to Jonah, and, and we uh, have a long association with the, with the uh, Assyrians. And uh, they are a people who became Christian and who then have suffered uh, immensely since the coming of Islam. Uh, they were allies of ours during World War I, were promised a homeland so they would be safe after having fought with the allies against the, the Turks and the Arabs and the Kurds. But they were betrayed, and they were dumped, and they were abandoned, and uh, 750,000 Assyrians were slaughtered in the Armenian Genocide. And now, with the coming of, uh, of ISIS into their region, they're appealing again, making a, a loud cry uh, for the cause of the Assyrian nation. 
for an autonomous region in the Nineveh Plain. Well, it's always confusing when we start talking about Assyrians because while you're saying that there is an Assyrian people, uh, but they are a displaced people, they don't actually have a state or a territory that they can call their own. Uh, they're, they're in that region around Kurdistan to the north of northern Iraq, and uh, and they have certainly a long history, and as you describe it, right back into biblical history, mm. there's ups and downs, and it's very hard to keep a track of things depending on when you're thinking about which point in history. But there are, as you say, an Assyrian remnant, and they are wanting to have their own homeland. How likely is it that they'll get that uh, that desire, uh, given the, the circumstances with the rise of Islamic State? Well, I think it's absolutely certain and um, one reason why I'm certain of it is the biblical promise in uh, Isaiah 19. Uh, uh, there is a, the promise of the three nations that are blessed and are a blessing to the whole earth, and that is Egypt, Israel, and Assyria. And the promise uh, there in, at the end of Isaiah 19 is that one day there will be a highway linking Egypt and Assyria, and in the middle of them will be Israel, and they will all worship the Lord together. So there's this biblical promise that really will always give the Assyrian people hope that their nation will not be obliterated from the face of the earth. Their nation will exist and their nation will have a homeland. Uh, the other thing is their great inspiration, of course, is the nation of Israel. And the, the Israel and Jewish people have been a phenomenal um, support to the Assyrian people through this. In fact, one of the other keynote speakers at the conference was a, um, a Jewish man whose, um, whose uh, expertise is uh, law, constitutional law, and the whole issue of self-determination. And he gave a wonderful presentation to show how the whole understanding of self national self-determination has evolved uh, through the 20th century particularly from the breakup of empires through to the breakup of the Soviet Union. And then, you know, human rights issues have come in right up to uh, the secession of South Sudan. So when you've got a state that uh, has a nation living within it um, and it treats that nation really badly and deprives them of all their rights and abuses them, then there is a case for self-determination to trump uh, territorial integrity and, and sovereignty. And so South Sudan stands as, a, as grounds for how this could be the case. Uh, I mean, ISIS, I believe, will be rolled back. Um, they've made themselves a target. Now they've made themselves a territorial integrity rather than just a terrorist organisation. And um, I truly believe that the nation of Assyria will exist. And you're saying it may actually be as a result of rolling back Islamic states and then it will be one of those things that'd be a, a major uh, historic occasion when uh, when the lands are in fact uh, awarded in one sense to uh, to particular people groups like the Assyrians. Yes, it would really just be a recognition actually of what's already the reality on the ground. The Assyrians... the the area, I mean, Assyria used to be the superpower of the region. You know, back in the days of Sennacherib, when Sennacherib came to conquer Jerusalem, Assyria was the great regional superpower. And, of course, it was then uh, crushed by Babylon and everything changed. And today 
the area that they're claiming or would like to claim as the Assyrian Autonomous Region is a tiny little dot of land, really. It's it's over the border. It's over the uh, waters, rather, from Mosul, so on the other from the other bank of the Euphrates, and it's just a, a little triangle. There's um, let me just get my piece of paper here. There are five districts in Nineveh Governorate, and just one out of Dohuk Governorate uh, that would come together to make um, the uh, Assyrian uh, administrative region. Um, in the Nineveh Plains. And this is, this is not just a, an area where the Assyrians live in large numbers, but it, this is the area where Assyrians dominate and are the overwhelming majority. So it was, it's really just giving this nation the right to govern itself without, the, um, without persecution, without having its uh, culture con constantly under threat and its people constantly under threat. Of course, the reality on the ground at the moment is that the Nineveh Plains have been emptied of Christians. So the Assyrian heartland, for the first time in the history of the world, is empty of Assyrians. Um, Mosul, for the first time in its history, has been emptied of Christians. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost flabbergasting, but as I pointed out at the conference, uh, it's not without precedent. The, um, Mesopotamia... Syria and Iraq have already been emptied of Jews. Uh, you know, uh, Baghdad was home to like 130,000 Jews just, you know, in 1949. And then they were all purged. They were literally uh, violent, violent pogroms. They were destitute, left destitute. They were robbed of all their rights and all their belongings. And uh, Israel rescued them. Uh, rescued a, just nearly 120,000 uh, Iraqi Jews out of um, out of uh, out of Iraq in the 1950s. So you know, here's the, the state of Israel exists, and it's a great encouragement to the Assyrian people. And as I said, the Jewish community, which knows the genocide when they see it, and have been in incredibly supportive of the South Sudanese and today of the Nuba in Sudan are also being incredibly supportive of the Assyrians today. The Australian... Uh, Chris Bowen has raised the issue in the Australian Parliament on behalf of the Assyrians, and Fred Nile has had a motion both moved and passed unanimously in the, um, in the Parliament of New South Wales. So there's, this, there's a momentum growing. There's a momentum growing. I'm often amazed at the confidence that we can have as to how things will eventually move towards an outcome when we can see biblical prophecy, which is so clear. And as you mentioned, that highway from Egypt yeah. to Assyria, uh, and that's something that we don't see today, and yet it is there in a biblical prophecy for last things. So that that is something that as as a Christian, you can confidently say, well, that is in the plan of God, that there will be an Assyrian nation. Absolutely, yep, absolutely. And, and it's a beautiful little phrase. The very last verse is, um, uh, God says, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance. And I love that. I keep reminding my Assyrian friends that this, this homeland that they are after and, and the preservation of this nation, it's the work of God's hands. So, um, you know, while they are very active, they're marvellous diplomats. They're such a 
They're beautiful, beautiful people. I love them so dearly. And uh, they're doing wonderful work. But ultimately, if the church will just pray, you know, and just really get behind them and support them, this is going to be the work of God's hands. He's going to do it. And in the meantime, uh, the Assyrian people who are displaced all across uh, the Middle East in Lebanon and Turkey and Jordan and uh, all through Kurdistan, uh, they really need the support of the church. They need uh, funds. They need aid. They need help to sustain themselves while they're essentially going to be living through a time of uh, a time of exile from their homelands. Elizabeth, we'll continue to talk some more about that on a different topic. And let's just give some attention to these terror attacks that happened on Friday, Friday night into Saturday. Uh, three nations, uh, Tunisia, Kuwait, uh, and also France, uh, terror attacks on their shores. Uh, this seems to be a an ongoing and escalating uh, move from Islamic State to be impacting on the world and on Westerners because it was Westerners who were targeted there on the beach in Tunisia. Mm. Uh, what are your thoughts? How are your feelings uh, going with hearing this sort of news? Yes, well, I think ISIS has claimed responsibility for all of them. Um, I think it's it's to be expected. Um, it's, a, it's part of their Ramadan offensive, I think. But I think we need to keep it all um, in a little bit of perspective. Terrorism is the weapon of the week. Um, they're really attacking, I think, in, in Tunisia especially, they're attacking the tourism industry in order to hurt the government financially, the same as has been done in, in Egypt in, in the past and in the, in the recent past as well. Uh, terrorism is the weapon of the week. Uh, ISIS does not have aeroplanes. Unfortunately, it has more weapons than it, we would like to think it should have. In Iraq, they're using Abrams tanks and they're using US-made armour-piercing guided missiles, both in Iraq and Syria. Uh, some of these have come through uh, because they've absorbed, they've, they've absorbed smaller groups that the US have armed. And it also comes because they've captured military bases that are full of U.S. materiel. So they're very well armed on the ground, but um, it's still an asymmetric battle. And I think the truth of the matter is, if the West and various other forces really wanted to defeat ISIS, they could do it. I think there are interests at work that are sort of a little bit content to let ISIS sit there, actually. Mm, well, it's very disturbing. Of course, the attack that happened in Kuwait, well, it was different to an attack on Westerners or tourists uh, like that in Tunisia. Yes, it, mm. it was a bombing in a, in a mosque, so it's, uh, it's an attack against Shiite Muslims. It's an yeah. internal uh, Islamic attack. That's right, and people often don't realise what the stakes are in the Middle East and how serious... The whole Sunni-Shiite battle is. Now, ISIS is a, what they call a takfiri group. That is, they're very vehemently anti-Shiite. And they, this is where they differ from uh, al-Qaeda, which is more pragmatic and is quite prepared to cooperate with Shiites, cooperate with Iran. Anything that advances the cause uh, is fine, uh, which is why I would say al-Qaeda is much more dangerous in the long run. Um, but ISIS is what we call a takfiri group. They're anti-Shiite, and they've really got their sights set on Baghdad. 
And, um, yeah, so they targeted a Shiite, uh, a Shiite mosque. Now, a lot of people say, oh, but the Shiites are just a little, you know, they're just a small group. They're, what, 20% of all Muslims? And that's true on a global scale. And that's because the Sunnis were uh, nomads and they were traders. And so they travelled a lot with their Sunni Islam. They came out to to Aceh and they, they, they travelled to the Philippines and they've travelled everywhere and spread Sunni Islam everywhere. The Shiites and the Persians were not so. They were, it's a different people. And uh, the Persians in particular, they were more uh, intellectually focused and, and, and quite a different uh, culture altogether. But in the Middle East, it's about 50-50, the numbers of Sunnis to Shiites. So perfect demographics for a war 50 50 but if you look at the map of where all the shiites live it's the shiites that sit on the oil so the whole eastern province of saudi arabia where saudi arabia's oil is located where its refineries and ports are located it's shiite dominated all persian gulf is shiite dominated so if the shiites rise the house of al saud is back in the desert you know they're back in the desert so this is a really big thing it's about more than religion uh it's about survival um for the house of sword uh it's it's big it's really big it's not something that can be easily pacified now, Elizabeth, another dimension to our conversation, and we'll invite then the listeners to be part of our conversation, is that here in Australia we feel like we are somewhat removed from all of this activity that's going on in the Middle East. And I want to reflect with you back on uh, on a, a statement you made in a conversation we had a long time ago, uh, that the idea that if there was a change in marriage in the West that that may actually become a trigger for persecution against Christians in Western nations. Now, uh, when we talk about momentous things, there was, of course, this big decision on the weekend with the Supreme Court in the United States uh, overriding legislators and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and making same-sex marriage legal in every state in the United States. Is this something, as a religious liberty analyst, uh, that you can comment on that we ought to be very concerned about? Oh, absolutely! It's uh, it's huge, and we've we've been as a religious liberty observer. I've been observing uh, persecution rising against uh, Christians for their views. Often, nothing more than thought crimes of ha- you know having thoughts and uh, views that are now deemed completely unacceptable in this day and age. Uh, so, I've been watching this rise for some time now. In fact, it was two thousand and five that the UK passed its Equality Bill. So that's 10 years ago. And, you know, so at that time, we were already seeing the beginnings of it. And today we're seeing, you know, Christians being sacked and sued left, right and centre. And it's not just pastors. You know, people often say, oh, you know, pastors are going to be put under threat to marry gay people and and, um, we'll have to write protections for pastors and churches into the legislation. Well, that is just the tiniest tip of the iceberg. And the people who are being sacked and sued are just, they're Christian, ordinary Christians who have ordinary jobs. They're school teachers who do not want to read, uh, be forced to read, I have two mummies, to the preschool kids. And so they're being sacked. 
and they're being sued for having views that are uh, unacceptable. Uh, judges who are being asked to, uh, you know, rule over, over the welfare of a child, and the judge says, you know, in fact, in, in one case in the UK, the judge said to colleagues in a closed-door meeting, I believe a child's interests lie in having a mother and a father. And he was sacked for having uh, gross misconduct, I think he was charged with. And uh, yeah, this, is, this, this just goes so deep. And right down, a lot of people have heard of the, the conflict with, at, at Baker's, um, the, the Baker's Bakery that wouldn't do the gay wedding cake. Now, people say, oh, that's such terrible discrimination. But the thing is, uh, the gay couple had been customers at this bakery forever. Like, it, it wasn't as if they were, the, the Christian baker was not prepared to serve a homosexual man or a homosexual couple. They'd always served them. What they'd been asked to do is to, pre, to, to do a cake that was going to be decorated in a certain way that they found they couldn't in all conscience bring themselves to do it. And they said, oh, you'll have to get someone else to do it, sorry. And uh, so they've been ch challenging that one through the courts for quite some time now. Uh, so what this ha is doing is it's taking away the rights of Christians to even, uh, to even think in some cases, but to, to, have, to be able to live according to their conscience. It's really quite serious. It's quite totalitarian. And the situation in the U.S. now is that they've got... a a Supreme Court of nine judges acting like it is a democratically elected legislature. I mean, the court is supposed to make rulings on the basis of law, not to make laws. That's what the parliament does, and that's what we elect our parliamentarians to do. And here in America, you've got a, a group of judges making, making laws for the country, uh, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. It's, it it's certainly doesn't incredible. appear to be uh, something that you would expect to see in the nation that sort of wore the uh, the banner of you know champions of of democracy. It's yes. it's something yeah. that works completely against that, doesn't it? Absolutely, it does. And uh, you know, I think uh, people people don't really quite understand where all this has come from. It's been what the proponents call a long march through the institutions, and that's what it's been. And Christians have been the proverbial frog in the pot, completely unaware of what's going on, uh, maybe a little bit self-absorbed, a little bit, I don't know, clueless. I, I'm really not sure. It's almost been like a sort of a gross deception that all is well when... You've got uh, uh, you've got Marxist groups and you've got gay groups. You've got different groups with agendas, quietly, patiently, strategically, progressing with their, as they call it, the long march through the institutions to gradually infiltrate deeper and deeper and deeper until the foundations of society are basically overturned. And that's the point we're at. And uh, it's a, going to be a really difficult uh, fight back if we can make a fight back and the only way to do it is to convince people of the uh, the value of Christianity and the wisdom in it uh, that Christianity is a is a civilizing force that it is the truth it, it represents truth it isn't an arbitrary uh, legalistic thing and I think I think Christianity has so often been portrayed as something arbitrary and legalistic 
that has turned people off and, and yet really it's just truth and wisdom for our good and in our interests. Well, Elizabeth, I want to invite our listeners to be part of our conversation, opening our talkback line on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you'd like to participate in our conversation, we've been talking about uh, Assyria, uh, given that the conference that Elizabeth was addressing on the weekend was talking about Assyria. You might have some thoughts on change in the Middle East on the biblical prophecy of what eventually the Middle East perhaps might look like and how you can be confident that those things will come about. You might have your own thoughts on the terror attacks that have happened around the world in places like Tunisia or in Kuwait or the terror attack in France. You can be part of our conversation on that too or you might have some thoughts on what's happened in the United States over the weekend. The United States Supreme Court overruling legislatures to introduce same-sex marriage uh, as being legal in all states in the United States. Uh, 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to be part of our conversation. Elizabeth Kendall, our guest, religious liberty analyst, 17 years, was the principal researcher and writer for the World Evangelical Alliance. These days she's director of advocacy at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom and also adjunct research fellow at the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths at the Melbourne School of Theology. It's Neil with you, 20 20, our talkback line open 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to be part of our conversation today. Our guest this hour, Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst. We're talking through a whole bunch of huge issues that have resulted from the weekend, uh, not to mention the terrorist attacks at Tunisia, in Kuwait and in France, but also the decision made by the United States Supreme Court uh, that uh, overrules legislatures and is now imposing a move towards same-sex marriage for the United States. These things are important and they are affect, they have an effect on our religious liberty. Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, our guest. Elizabeth, let's take a call from Diane in Perth in WA. Hello, Diane. Welcome along to 2020. Good morning. Thank you. Look, I just, um, I've just been listening to your show. In fact, I've only just realised that I can from the area I live in, so... This morning um, was the first time I've tuned in since moving. I, I was listening to it from another place that I lived. But oh, it's wonderful to have you back on board. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and I, this is just an observation that I, 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 I was talking to my husband this morning and, and I'm feeling really frustrated with this whole um, uh, legalising gay marriage. I went to church yesterday after um, being on Facebook, as you know, millions are, and, and the, the, the gay flag is... is you know, this new thing that everyone's putting on their profile. So I was sort of just watching and from a distance of what everyone was saying. And, and most people, well, the majority by far, were really glad of this um, legislation going through. And so I was a bit sort of dumbstruck by it all. And when I got to church yesterday, I was absolutely astounded that nothing was mentioned in church. Mm. And I go to a really big church and, um, you know, a charismatic a wonderful church, just a, a lovely church. But I was stunned that, that you know, we, we did the usual tithing message that happens every week, and we did all of the usual stuff and not a word about terrorism or this really big thing that's going to impact us, that is impacting us um, in the form of, of legalising gay marriage. And, and I'm just, I just wondered if it's the same, you know, across the board, if the majority of other people, listeners, have, 
had the same thing. It seems to be a reflection of the apathy that there is within Christian churches around the nation. Elizabeth Kendall, your thoughts on what Diane is sharing? Yes, I would say that uh, you you would not be alone in that. I would think that probably in the overwhelming overwhelming majority of churches, not just in Australia but across the West, uh, you know, the um, ISIS sweeps into Mosul and cleans, cleanses it of Christians and nothing's mentioned on Sunday. The Supreme Court of the US legislates gay marriage for the country and nothing's mentioned on Sunday. I think we need to change the way we actually approach worship. Uh, I think the whole idea that worship has to be celebration from beginning to end really needs to be challenged. I think we, if we're going to be really one body in Christ, if we're going to be a holy nation and a people, as we're described in 1 Peter 2, then we have to really start being interested in the, the body of Christ as a whole. We have to remember that Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of these, my children, you did for me. And whatever you did not do, you did not do for me. And we have to start caring about what's happening to our brothers and sisters. And we have to start caring about what's happened to this land where God has put us. And uh, we are essentially custodians of it. You know, I think when the Christian community is completely silent, silent or virtually silent in the face of of a real uh, sort of a degradation of, of its values, the state and country's values, I think um, they're going to be held to account. God's going to want to know why. Diane from Perth in WA, thank you so much for thank your you, input Diane. today. If you'd like to venture to make your own comment, our talkback line is open, 1-800-316-316. That's 1-800-316-316. You know, Elizabeth, I, I actually had Bill Muhlenberg on our 2020 program on Friday and Mm. we were talking about the issues that were uh, unfolding in the US with the US Supreme Court and as you know Bill Muhlenberg is uh, a a American by birth these days I think he's an Australian citizen but uh, but in one of his articles and he's been writing uh, prolifically over the weekend he says we're now much like the early church we have to start afresh Uh, we have to evangelize anew disciple anew and once again work for things like the proper understanding of marriage and family. All these yes. battles were fought before, but now we're losing it all. Yes. What are your thoughts on, on that, uh, that idea? Absolutely. And I think um, I often say to people, um, once upon, you know, not, actually not all that long ago even, Christianity was still sat quite comfortably within mainstream culture. I'd say that we've been undergoing culture change for a couple of hundred years. But even up until recently, Christianity still sat quite comfortably within mainstream culture in the West. And, um, but now things have changed, uh, and Christians are truly countercultural today. If they're going to be Christians, they will be countercultural. I often describe to people culture as a flowing stream. It flows. It's going somewhere. It's heading somewhere. And sometimes when you're in it and everyone's flowing together, you barely even realize that you're in it. It's only when you stand up and start to look at where you're heading that you start to realize maybe the strength of the flow. And if you start to go against the flow, that's when you become countercultural and you start to realize how much resistance you will face and how many obstacles will come flying towards you and how, how much abuse you will get. 
Now that was the case in the early church. Uh, the church was countercultural. It's the case all through the non-Western world. Christians are countercultural in in countries that are non-Christian countries, you know, where there are Muslim majorities and Hindu majorities. Um, the Christ, Christians are countercultural, and where they are countercultural, they are persecuted. And because Christianity is no longer representative of mainstream culture, Christians in the West are becoming a countercultural force. We are dissidents, we are resistors, we are counter-revolutionaries, and we are going to be experiencing more and more persecution uh, the longer this goes on. In one sense, uh, this is not necessarily unusual, Elizabeth, because original Christianity came from the fringes. It was on the outside. It was persecuted. Uh, we have grown up, most of us here in Australia, uh, as you say, with Christianity sitting very comfortably within the culture. Uh, there is a sense here, isn't there, that real Christianity uh, is actually, if we think historically, used to the idea of being countercultural and fighting its way uh, to bring truth into that culture. Yes, I, I've often wondered how can we, how can we stop this deadly cycle of. Christianity being a civilized force which creates a wonderful culture which then becomes so proud and arrogant that it collapses right so I mean this happened you know we see it in the history of Israel too this constant cycle and we've, we've seen it in smaller like western uh, in areas but I think we're seeing it in western civilization overall where this civilization has risen up in the west uh, this Western, this uh, basically on the on, on a Judeo-Christian foundation, with Judeo-Christian institutions and laws and culture, and it's become something wonderful, and uh, then it's become proud and arrogant. And I've in in my book, Turn Back the Battle, um, I've got a chapter called Forgetting God, and um, it refers back to Deuteronomy chapter eight, where Moses warns the people, uh, beware lest you forget. The, forget the Lord and when your flocks have increased and your herds have increased and your families have increased and you're all wonderful and prosperous and everything you forget the Lord and you think by my own hand and my own strength have I gotten myself this wealth and he says in the day you forget the Lord you will perish and uh, you know I think we're seeing that I think we're seeing that now I think you know we've become so the western civilization has become uh, arrogant in in this belief that we've done it ourselves we didn't actually it wasn't because of anything god said that made western civilization great we're just br naturally brilliant and i think we're going to find out just how unbrilliant we actually are i think we're de-civilizing very very fast and i often wonder how do you break this cycle and i'm convinced that it's thankfulness uh, a continual thankfulness for everything god has given us our works to remind us that what we have is from God's hand, but we're not very good at it as human beings. We're just not very good at it. Well, it's the humanist myth, isn't it, that yeah. uh, we did it all ourselves. I did yeah. it my way. Uh, 1-800-316-316, if you'd like to be part of our conversation, let's hear from Coral in Cooma. Hello, Coral. Welcome along to 2020. Hello. Yes. Coral, what are your thoughts? Look, I've only got one thought, um, which I've actually said before. I, I really appreciate these types of conversations, and I know that there's. I know that it's hard. I know that it's sad. I know that with an individual person 
who um, might have been like gay or something like that. It's very, very hard. I know if someone's had a family member that was killed in war, it's very, very hard. And you can um, have a degree of silence that's almost impermeable. Yeah. And and if it comes out, and if you, uh, if I can put it to you, got two left feet, it can make it worse. And I so appreciate just the fact that we get all these matters into the open and the, the testimonies of people that have come through it in some way, simple things sometimes, um, remaining in excellent, um, calm, prayerful lifestyle, you know, you don't resort to drugs or all the different things that could happen because things are very, very hard. Mm. Um, this is such a wonderful thing, and I just want to thank you for it, wow. even though this is only part of... I, I know there could be worse things, but some of the things we didn't know how bad they could get because no one would talk about yes. it. Well, yeah. Coral, we're very pleased to be able to bring conversations like this to you. And, uh, Coral from Cooma, thanks so much for your input today. Let's content, Let's take some more calls. Jonathan is in Perth. Hello, Jonathan. What are your thoughts? Yeah. My, my point is... Uh, in the Bible says, pray that ye enter not into temptation. But as I look at a few days, we are realizing or restrained. We want to do our own things. We are not really focusing on the gospel itself or the scripture. We interpreting scripture according to what we feel like. And therefore, there's nothing. We don't have sound doctrine again. There's okay, they said... There's a lot of... A good point there, Jonathan, about uh, making reference there to the sound doctrine, not just the way we feel. Let's take another call. Yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, John is in Rockhampton. Hello, John. Hello. John, what are your thoughts? Look, uh, just uh, from what's happened over in the States with uh, the legislation for gay marriage and stuff, I saw on Facebook the whole everyone changing their profile with the uh, colours of the rainbow. The question I have is that how do we as Christians be proactive in a social media environment without causing so much offence or hurt to Mm. people who have this point of view of gay marriage because we're supposed to love everyone, gay people, everyone and be Christ to these people how can we uh, express uh, our point of views and go. This is this is my father. This is how he loves people. Uh, what some proactive steps and things which we can do to uh, uh, in social media and these type of things to. Good, John. Uh, let's hear, let's hear from Elizabeth Kendall. Elizabeth, your thoughts on how you approach uh, the way that you interact with people, whether it's personally face to face or in social media, as John's saying. Yes, thank you for that, John. That uh, that question. That's a really good question, and it's exactly the same when it comes to Islam. You know, how do we how do we deal with the subject of Islam uh, while still showing that we love Muslims? It's the same sort of issue. Um, and I believe that there's a, it's a lot to do with um, the, the way we go about things, the words we use. I mean, we've, we've got to a stage now where I think we have to think through our words very, very carefully. We have to show grace very, very intentionally. 
I think the day when you can just sort of ad lib things, you know, in public speeches and and what you write have gone. We have to be very intentional in our displaying of grace. Um, so we need to be willing to speak for what is true um, without being emotive or inflammatory while always showing grace at the same time. And I think it's about being like above reproach as much as possible so that we can't be accused of being hateful and we can't be accused. Now, the thing is, we will be. And, um, you know, I get accused. I've recently got accused of being uh, a hate monger just because I spoke about uh, persecution of Christians. And I thought I'd done it extremely graciously and very matter-of-factly. And I was still accused of being a, a fear monger and, and a hate monger. So, it, you know, you can't avoid it. You just can't avoid it. And, and so I think we have to grit our teeth and realize that that's the way it's going to be. But I think for our own conscience sake and before the Lord, we need to be very careful uh, how we say things and always be prepared to speak graciously and to display grace and speaking the truth in love. And it's not an easy thing to do. Sometimes You have to be very intentional with it. And with a number of groups I've um, spoken with, like evangelistic groups, uh, I've suggested that they actually uh, write down and prepare the, their responses to the usual questions that they are asked or the usual accusations that fly at them. Write them down, uh, think through every word uh, and almost memorise them so that you're never actually on the spot having to try and think things through. So, um, yeah, it's not an easy thing, but I, I think we just have to we have to put, put our best foot forward. John from Rockhampton, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020. one 316 if you'd like to have your say. Uh, there's a link, isn't there, in the way that we have to respond, Elizabeth, and it's, as you say, uh, the same way when you're talking about uh, rising Islam and you've got uh, rising uh, homosexuality and and the changing way that uh, people uh, need to relate on that whole issue and there and there are similarities but you can't actually get those uh, those pat answers as you're saying those practiced answers if you're going to be sitting in front of the TV and and uh, getting all the distractions and the entertainments that you normally do you've really got to take some time haven't you to think it through write it down and and understand how you're going to communicate oh yes I think the day for Christians being very uh, you know, able to just like thinking about that cultural stream and just to, able to float on the surface and have a nice time. Those days are over. Uh, we really are in a in a resistance now. We have a lot of resistance. We go. The stream has changed direction, and uh, we now have to struggle. So I think church, one of the problems that I think has led to the rise of uh, a lot of things that we're looking at today: um, atheism, uh, hostility. Uh, hostility against the church one of the reasons for the rise of that has been the fact that the church has become I think quite flabby uh, has not been exercising really very well at all and most Christians I'm afraid to say they cannot articulate their own faith let alone answer the difficult questions of life so um, people have just sort of given up and, and uh, see it as you know, as as very flabby, a very okay. flabby church. So, and you know, I'd like to go back to what Carol, uh, Coral rather, said earlier, how she greatly appreciates these conversations, 
And, you know, this is something churches need to consider. Uh, you know, I want to sort of link what Coral said to with, with what Diane was saying about, you know, the churches are not touching the issue. And Coral said, you know, how greatly she appreciates that have these discussions. The fact is, if churches will just step out in faith themselves and, and allow the subject of suffering and persecution to come into their worship, uh, uh, have real discussions, maybe on a Saturday night or something, about the big issues in life, you know, gay marriage and a whole lot of other things, I think they'll find that they'll actually be meeting the needs of their congregation and, and relating to them at a deeper, more fundamental level than if they're just constantly engaged in uh, celebration or something. I think, I think they'll actually find that they're really meeting people where they're at. We'll come back and continue our conversation in just a few moments. Uh, maybe time for another call or two, 1-800-316-316. Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, our guest, back with more in a moment. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Elizabeth Kendall, our guest this hour. Some time for perhaps a quick comment or two. Uh, let's hear from Kira in Armadale in New South Wales. Hello, Kira. Welcome along to 2020. Hi. How are you going, Neil? Very good, Kira. You'll need to be very quick. What are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, I heard that other lady saying that in church there wasn't a mention of the ISIS attacks or, you know, the gay marriage thing. And yesterday in church, the same thing. They had prayer at the end. And there was not, and I was waiting, and not, there was not one mention made of what's, you know, with ISIS and all the awful things. Yep. Or the, and I, I just, I was really surprised that nobody sort of, it was just like, it was just the same things, always praying for sick, which is good, sick people and, I know, they're Really? Every church is going to need someone who monitors along some of these things so that they can bring them to the attention of the church. Uh, Kira, thank you so much for your input today. And let's quickly hear from Barbara in Broken Hill. Hello, Barbara. Uh, hello. Barbara, um, very quick. Uh, yes. What do I say to people when I'm saying that it's biblical that um, homosexuality is not um, as sinful and then they say, well, uh, I was born like this mm. from when I was a child and uh, God made me this way. Barbara, How do we get away with that? I'll point you to a podcast of an interview on Friday's edition of 2020 where with Bill Muhlenberg we went through a whole bunch of myths that homosexual activists are promoting. So have a look at our 2020 page. Uh, you'll find a podcast there of that conversation. It talks about a lot of the myths that homosexual activists actually promote. Barbara from Broken Hill, thank you so much for being part of 2020. Uh, we're running short of time now, Elizabeth, uh, bringing everything together. Let me just ask you about something that is so close to your heart, and that is the call for Christians to pray in these circumstances. How important is it to be on our knees before God? Well, I think this is, I'd love to take up what Kira has pointed out. I think there are people in every single church in Australia who are just absolutely yearning to see their churches really get serious about this, the matter of intercessory prayer and to recognise that it is advocacy to the highest authority uh, in the universe. This is a great privilege that we have, that we can come into the courts of the Lord at the invitation and through the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that maybe people in the churches, 
everyone out there who's listening to this who would like their church to be more engaged in serious intercessory prayer, talk to your pastors about it graciously, lovingly. Write a letter to the to the uh, to the elders, to the to the vestry, to whoever, and keep at it. Keep become an ambassador for prayer in your own church. Well, Elizabeth, uh, just to point people to your websites, now there are a number of them, but I think if people Google Elizabeth Kendall, uh, they'll find your religious uh, liberty prayer bulletins. Uh, Of course, uh, your book, Turn Back the Battle, uh, often uh, point people to that as a book that uh, is a great uh, uh, look at Isaiah. Elizabeth Kendall, uh, simply Google that name and you'll get some great uh, inspiration to prayer. Uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for being with us today on 2020. And thank you for having me again, Neil. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.